Well, good morning to all of you. It's so good to be with you. I'm Bob Turner from White Station Church in Memphis, and I'm filling in for Jonathan today, but I don't actually think I'm filling in for Jonathan. I think I'm filling in for somebody who was supposed to fill in for Jonathan, and he told me, if you can be available as the third string quarterback, I'd be happy to do it. I am happy to do it, so it's great to be with all of you and see people. Some of you I've known for a long time. Josh, we've been friends for a long time. Jonathan, I've known for a very long time, and I I don't think I've ever shared one particular thing about how grateful I am to him, but there is something that he's a part of uh, my story in a really profound way. We went to college together one time where I went to a class, and I sat next to him, and the first lecture of this class was just awful, and I thought, this is not going to be good. This is a Tuesday, Thursday class. This is not going to be great, and that was Tuesday. I came back on Thursday I'm like, here we go again, and, and Jonathan's writing stuff down the entire class. I thought that was kind of curious. He must have been getting a lot out of this. So the next Tuesday, I came back. I said, hey, I saw you were writing a lot of stuff down, and yet this class was terrible. I figured you and I already knew everything the teacher was saying. He goes, why? I said, why are you taking notes? He goes, I'm not taking notes. I was, I was writing love letters to this girl I'm in love with. Her name is Leslie. <laughs> I thought, you remember this? And, uh, and I said, well, I, there's this woman I've been dating, and I, I'm really in love with her. I'm going to try this. So I started writing love letters every single day. And then I looked over at his notes, and one day he's writing like a crossword puzzle, a romantic crossword puzzle to Leslie. And he'd go after class and stick it in her campus box. And I was like, that sounds pretty good. I can do that. And then he's doing a word search, and Jonathan's writing haikus, and I think he's making origami. And he's just doing arts and crafts in the back row of this class. And I was just doing exactly what he was doing. And that, that's how our semester went, you know, and how this goes. And by the way, our relationship really got off. My, the, Andrea and I were, were dating, and she just thought this was the greatest thing. Every Tuesday, Thursday, she gets a love note from me. And then the last day of class, as you know, the teacher says, I would like for you to submit a course evaluation. And I thought, this is going to be interesting because I have no idea what he was talking about the entire course. But I remember exactly what I wrote for the course evaluation. I wrote on the course evaluation, I believe every day for the rest of my life, I will be thankful for the things I did in this class. (laughs) And it's true, I am. I am. We've been married 19 years, going on 20. And you know what? This is a season we like to think about this, right? As we come into this most important week of Thanksgiving, I hope everybody is thankful. Two years ago, Our church at White Station said they wanted to have a bilingual night of praise. We do this occasionally, and it was going to be on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. I knew this was going to be a busy week because on Thursday of Thanksgiving, my wife told me we're going to be hosting her side of the family. We're going to have a lot of people in the house. And since everybody would be in town, we would do this thing where Thanksgiving is on Thursday. But since everybody's there, you also celebrate Christmas while everybody is in town. So on Saturday, we're going to do Christmas. How many of you have ever done the combo where you do two holidays in the same weekend? Don't recommend it. But anyway, so this is going to be great. She said, she said, here's what we're going to do. Just all the decorations, all of the stockings, all of the presents. We're going to have those in our attic. We have a one-story house. They're going to be in our attic after Thanksgiving's over. We'll take Thanksgiving up. We'll bring Christmas down. No problem at all. In our hallway, to get up to that attic of our single-story house, we have one of those pull-down ladders that will take you, like a Clark Griswold ladder, that'll take you right up to the attic. 
and, and that's how we're going to do it. Well, on Wednesday, I am making sure that everything for Christmas is up there, everything for Thanksgiving is down here, and the attic starts to, the, the, the ladder starts to wiggle. I said, this isn't good. Let me see if I can fix this. And by fixing it, I break it. And so the entire ladder falls off into the hallway, and we have a giant hole to our attic. It's freezing. I feel this cold air coming down, and we have an enormous problem that Thanksgiving is down here, but everything from Christmas is up there, and we can't get to Christmas, and we're just here in Thanksgiving. So the problem for Thursday was going to be that we have a giant hole in our ceiling, and the problem for Saturday was everything we needed was up there, and we didn't know how to get up there. Not to mention, I had 45 minutes that I had to be at this bilingual night of worship. I'm getting stressed out. I'm getting cranky. I'm getting angsty. You know exactly what this holiday feeling is. And I'm like, I'm never going to be able to fix that. I'm driving to the church and I'm saying, Lord, why do I don't even know why we have Thanksgiving. I don't understand who's <laughs> Lord, whose idea was Christmas? I just don't know what this is all about. I get to the church and one of the shepherds gets me. I think he can tell him in a tense moment. I said, I don't know. This is just not going very well. He said, are you going to be able to host Thanksgiving? I said, yeah, we can, do, we can do Thanksgiving. He said, are you going to be able to host Christmas? I said, I don't know. Right now, everything's kind of up in the air. And, <laughs> and, he, and he said, okay, we'll just have a seat. And I have a seat. And the person stands up to lead this bilingual night of worship. And they said words that just convicted me so much. They said, welcome to our program, which this year we have titled Gracias. Thank you. And as you sit here in these moments, don't you have this thought like, man, we can really get burdened with all the angst and all the stuff that's going on and forget how much we have to be thankful for. We can all make a list of grievances that seem so big, and yet we're called to count our blessings, count our blessings. So hopefully for you, this can be a a week of counting your blessings. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to John chapter 2. Jonathan's in a series on the Gospel of John, and I'm going to read some of the opening lines of John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples, who had also been invited, had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. One of the oldest commentaries on this section of Scripture speculates there's an odd thing in the construction where it sounds like the verse says, Jesus was invited and his disciples came too. And some of the earliest commentators believe the reason they ran out of wine was because his disciples were wedding crashers. And I think it's the best theory I've ever heard. Unfortunately, it's been debunked by more recent scholars, which saddens me. And Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. And so Jesus says, no. And then his mother says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So mom and Jesus have an interesting conversation there. Something is going on with her eyes that tell Jesus what's going to happen. Now standing there were six stone water jars For the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. 
It's important that right now we stop and think about the details of this story. Six stone jars that can contain 20 to 30 gallons of water. This is a lot. Uh, 30 gallons of water can weigh something like 240 pounds, not including the stone jar that's in it. Furthermore, it seems to indicate that Jesus tells them, fill up the jars, which means they didn't have water in them. So the very first step is you'd have to go to a well. Do you know how long it takes to get 180 gallons of water out of a well? This is an incredible amount of water, though it doesn't stay water for very long because Jesus turns the water into wine. The average size for a bottle of wine that you would get at the supermarket is 750 milliliters. Jesus makes enough wine to fill 908 bottles of wine. If you're not interested in the wine, this is 75 cases of wine. Do you know how many of those good boxes that would be? Those are good boxes. Every time I move, I say, go to the liquor store, get us some of those good boxes. I had a friend who invited me to help him move recently, and he had all these boxes that were Amazon boxes. I was so disappointed. I said, you got to go to the liquor store to get your boxes. Every good move starts with the trip to the liquor store. You got to get the good boxes. <laughs> and yet Jesus makes an amount that would be so much more than what was needed. This could have been a large group of people, but 908 bottles of wine? This is intended to say that whenever Jesus makes something, it's more than you would ever need. Remember when they catch fish, they catch so much that it breaks nets? Remember when Jesus makes loaves? He makes so much that they have baskets and baskets of leftovers. There's this idea like, You can drink what you want, but there's way more than you could ever drink. This sounds like when he says in John chapter 10, I've come that you would have life. And what does he say? That it would be abundant. And here it says the wine, it's it's filled to the brim. That there's so much there. The story continues. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief stewards. They took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee and revealed his glory and the disciples believed in him We have to ask why Jesus is doing something like this. Usually when Jesus does miraculous signs, miraculous works, it's like healing a person. Or it's it's some sort of thing where it's like a a life-altering event. Uh, It's cleansing a leper. It's helping a person who's never walked be able to walk. It's healing a person who's been bleeding for a really long time. And yet here... It seems as if, if we read it on its face, it's like, well, Jesus helped people enjoy a good party. Uh, We could also read it as saying Jesus spared the dignity of the family who was running out of wine. 
And it, that's better than just helping people have a good party, but I'm not sure that Jesus' miracles and signs always relate to just saving dignity. There's sometimes where Jesus does things that threaten people's dignity. There's one time where Jesus does an exorcism and the spirit goes into a herd of pigs and 2,000 pigs run over a cliff, which would have bankrupt a farmer. And so there's things that Jesus does that don't always help dignity. So why this story? This is the one miracle that just stands out. You're like, how does this one fit in with the others? I want us to look at six clues this morning that might help us appreciate why this story gets told, what John is doing, what Jesus is doing. The first one is already mentioned that it's called a sign. In the Gospel of John, it doesn't have miracles just to show that Jesus has authority. Instead, they have signs that point to his, his theological teachings. When Jesus multiplies the loaves, he says, I am the bread of life. When Jesus heals Lazarus, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. When he raises him, there's this idea that Jesus does a sign, and the sign points to reality of Jesus. And so the question here would be, well, okay, what's this pointing to? It doesn't explicitly tell us, at least maybe. No. Jesus says in this, the second clue I would say is this cryptic thing he says to his mom, my hour has not come. In the gospel, whenever he uses hour, he uses it in a very particular way. John 7 and John 8 it says the authorities do not arrest Jesus because his hour had not come. Uh, John 13, 16, 17, um, 12, 16, 17, Jesus, in the spirit of prayer or in talking to the Father, affirms that his hour had come. And every time he uses the expression his hour, he's talking about his crucifixion, and his resurrection. What about this idea here that Jesus doesn't just take ordinary vessels, but instead these are stone vessels used for Jewish purification rites? Do you notice this, that Jesus could have made the wine in any sort of container, and yet they just happen to have giant stone containers that were used for purification? I find that interesting. Then there's also this conversation that we might get to. You can see the jars behind me. You can, uh, the next one we might get to is on the use of a particular expression. Let's look at the fourth there, the third day. Do you notice that was like in the first sentence where he said, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. The third day of what? There's no chronology at all. And it says it was clearly on the third day. And you're like, well, we haven't heard about the first day or the second day yet, but it places an event, you might say arbitrarily, on a third day, but maybe it's not arbitrary. And then it has this expression in the end, verse 11, it says, Jesus did these first of his signs in Cana of Galilee and revealed his glory. That's an interesting word, revealed his glory. Sometimes we think of that like, Jesus did this and everybody thought it was awesome. Jesus did this and showed, no. In John's gospel, the word glory is incredibly particular, and it refers to the idea that Jesus is glorified by going to the cross. That's his glory in John's gospel. John 1.14, we have seen his glory, the glory of 
the Father's Son who came full of grace and truth. That is his glory. The Father says to the Son in chapter 12, I've glorified it, I'll glorify it again. That's that Jesus is being lifted up so that all men will be drawn to him. Finally, you can't miss that this entire story is about wine. Genesis 49, it says, A scepter will not depart from Judah. He washes garments in wine. Wine is used for purification. Matthew 26, when Jesus holds up a cup, he said, This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many. This is poured out for sin. And he's holding a cup of wine. And so here, if you go through these clues, you say there are six specific details in this story that should tell us something. What is it telling us? When I was in high school, I tended to ignore most of the things teachers said, but I remember in English classes, there was something teachers loved talking about. And English teachers loved to notice literary foreshadowing. Do you remember foreshadowing? They talked about this all the time. This is when your English teacher would read a story and see a bunch of things that you didn't see. And so they, they would read To Kill a Mockingbird. They would read Beowulf. They would read Canterbury. And, and, and you would say, I saw the words, but I didn't see anything that you saw in this. And they would say, this is foreshadowing. So in this story, I believe the six keys that we've looked at all are foreshadowing of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And I think it gets even more interesting when we ask the question, how does this actually fit into the larger story John's telling? And we know this because of the story that comes immediately after this. Hang out with me for one minute. I want to show you this. It's really cool. But the next episode that happens is in John chapter 3. Jesus goes into the temple and he cleanses the temple and he kicks the money changers out. And Jesus says, this will be a house of prayer. You've made a den of robbers. And then there's this interesting thing where Jesus said, destroy the temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And there's this parenthetical comment where it says he's talking about his body. That's interesting. It's an allusion to the resurrection of Jesus. Every other gospel has that story of Jesus cleansing the temple at the very end of the story, right before he's crucified. John takes that story that everybody else puts at the end. He moves it to the beginning. And then he pairs it with a story about an abundant amount of wine. If you pair a story that talks about a body being broken and then being raised, and you put it right next to an episode about an unlimited amount of wine, what's the foreshadowing? The foreshadowing is this entire book is about the atonement of Jesus. This is a story of grace. And the the author wants us to see at the very beginning, before your mind goes other places, before you start thinking this is about a political revolutionary, before you start thinking that Jesus is just a good teacher, or before you start thinking that Jesus is just a philosopher like the rest of them, we need you to know that it's a story about grace. Everything you've ever done, there is no reason to be ashamed. It's a story of grace. 
Every moment you've regretted, there's nothing to regret. It's a story of grace. That whoever you are and wherever you've been, you must know that Jesus knows before this even gets started. It's a story of grace. And he begins knowing that at the end, his blood will be shed out for us, shed for us. His body will be broken and it will be raised in three days. It's right there in front of us. I heard the disturbing news recently. McDonald's has made an announcement that they will no longer have the free refill machines in their dining room. They want to somehow get rid of these. I, as a McDonald's patron, am very sad. I enjoy being able to go up and get my drink refilled. Some of you buy one cup for your entire family and just pass it around to your kids. Time, it's over, folks. It's over. McDonald's says this is going to be okay. They think they can make it. Their comparison is that this is how Chick-fil-A does things. Chick-fil-A says you can just walk up to the counter, hand them your cup. They will promptly go and refill it for you with a smile on their face. You will say thank you. They will say my pleasure. McDonald's has full confidence this is exactly how it's going to go at McDonald's. I'm not saying I have my doubts, but I was at another restaurant recently, not McDonald's, and I went in. I ordered on the app. I went in to pick up my item. I got to the door to enter because they said pick it up at the counter and it was locked even though the door said open I knocked the person came to me they said why are you trying to come in I said it says open they said but we're closed I said well I was just going to get I'd like to get my order they said you'll have to go through the drive through and I said but I can't I can't go through the drive through I've already ordered that's they said well why would you want to come inside I said because the app told me to pick my food up at the counter and the woman looked at me and said we have an app McDonald's says it's going to work. I'm going to miss it. I love being able to walk into the dining room, see that giant bank of drink dispensers, and know that I can have as much as I want. And that's exactly what's going on in the gospel story right here. The author is announcing at the very beginning of the story, there's free refills. Just so you know, before you start reading, if you see any teaching here that makes you think you've got to get everything right, we want you to know there's free refills. If you see any commands in here and you think, I'm going to try to do that, but if I, if I fail and I don't get it right, there's free refills. If there's any insecurity you have in your life and you say, Jesus is so great, I don't know if I measure up, there's free refills. And it's telling us right there, some of, some of us have a past of religious pharisaical legalism. And we were told that this is based on meritorious achievement. And yet that doesn't mix here because Jesus would pour out the wine and say, there's free refills. Some people were taught that some sins are worse than other sins. Some people were taught that certain things in your life could stand against you forever and that people would always be snickering and looking at you with disdain, knowing that you're just a little worse than the rest of us, and morally they thought, I can never, ever measure up. Jesus says, there's free refills. There's free refills. Some of you look in the mirror and think, I don't know if I'm enough. I don't know. I have insecurity. I have questions. I have doubts. And the answer of the Gospel of John is simple. You will never be enough. There's free refills. And the question for us as a church, do we want free refills. Is it enough 
for us that there's always enough wine. 908 bottles of wine. Why would you go around wondering, am I enough? Is there enough? Can I do enough? His grace is sufficient for you. Let's hear about some next steps today.